Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cabot Co. Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast and ours, too. I'm your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. And we are coming to you this week to talk about the episode, Christopher Bundy Died on Sunday. So, Bridget, would you like to give us just a little snapshot summary of this episode? Sure. I mean, we can just call this episode Murder at the Oasis Part 2. Um, it's, uh, or I guess 2.0. Uh, essentially, Jessica is writing a short story. It's going to be published in a literary magazine. The literary magazine gets sold by some guy who's turning it into a girly magazine. She goes to his estate, presumably in upstate New York, though it looks a lot like California to me. And while she's there convincing him to let her out of this contract, he dies. And obviously someone in the estate did it in the great tradition of cozy mysteries on wealthy country estates. Right. And of course, this episode, uh, the reason I call it Murder at the Oasis 2.0 is that similarly, it's a patriarch who's like a kind of sleazy guy. And we even learn that he has ties to the mob later. Um, but there's this whole thing with video cameras. The murderer, his niece, actually set up the murder using a video camera and looping the feedback. So people thought they were watching a live surveillance video and they were watching something pre-recorded thereby giving her a chance to sneak away and commit the murder and look like she had an alibi, which is actually kind of clever. It's also something we've kind of seen in this uh, series. It also speaks to the power of the surveillance state. Right. So it's, you know, that's a really good point. I've actually a very good summary. I think you've done a very good job of giving us sort of the helicopter view of the whole. Thank you. I live for your praise. Well, I'm sure you, I, I know that's not true, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you live for everyone's <laughs> praise, not just mine. <laughs> oh, we're not getting into like some psychoanalysis of Bridget right now. Back but to anyway, the back to the subject <laughs> at hand. So um, I think that you're right. I think what strikes me about this episode as I watched it was that it did feel like a bit of a rehash, but also that it like it just has all the ingredients that we've come to expect from Murder, She Wrote, like, you know, the scheming patriarch, the technology playing the key role in the in the murder. And, you know, I didn't dislike this episode. I just found it very, like, you know, meat and potatoes kind of Murder, She Wrote episode, really. You know, um, before I started making a career out of Murder, She Wrote, um, which is, I guess, a year now, Teach, we've celebrated our one-year anniversary and we didn't even do anything for it. But um, Well, that's true. But We'll have to revisit that idea later. But, um, I, you know, before, before that, I... Um, if you'd asked me to like think of a Murder, She Wrote episode, I always remember the thing about the videotape being looped mm -hmm. into the camera. Like, it's just such an interesting way of committing murder, although I'm pretty sure technologically it doesn't make any sense how they do it, which we can talk about later. Um, right. But I, I, it always stood out to me. And I think it's because it's such a, like... Um, 80s you know mode mm -hmm. of of murder with technology uh and I, yeah i mean i guess the episode is is kind of a redux of other episodes it also reminds me of the one uh in kentucky with the racehorse and the mm -hmm. dog yep because we had the same thing with the security guard watching the feed you know and that one but mm -hmm. so i think it's like stuff they've done before but it's certainly not bad and it's um i think it has a really great guest cast that helps carry through the interest on it right of course the the headliner here being burt convey who plays the tyrannical sleazy um patriarch we also have robert stack who's always fun right before he starts i, I mean know, i was really i'm like why would burt convey come before robert stack oh only cuz I don't know, because I remember him being beloved on the Golden Girls, so I just, you know, 
But I mean, this is right before Robert Stack becomes the host of Unsolved Mysteries and becomes yeah. sort of an icon in the 80s and early 90s TV. Like e- yeah. every time I hear that voice, I'm just like, oh. you know. He has such a good co- voice. He does. You know, and of course he has a long history in classic Hollywood even before this, but it's Unsolved Mysteries that really sort of solidified his place in the Well, the his TV of- stardom, I think. Yeah. But we yeah. should, you know, for 80s and 90s babies who might remember that or have watched it when it came on Netflix a few years ago. Um, you know, he, as TJ saying, like he was an actor first, right? So he wasn't the host of a murder mystery show. He was an actor who then went to do that series. Right. So he's, I think one of those people that many millennials like you and I access backwards, you know, yeah. we, we understand him through the lens of unsolved mysteries, but at the time, most people would have been familiar with him, f- you know, from various projects, including being in Douglas Sirk's written on the wind, probably most notable, like his most notable film role. But it's you know he still does that has have that really striking voice like there's just something really noteworthy about it. It's very sinister. Like I don't think he's trying to be, but and maybe I'm just over reading it because of spooky. It, but maybe it's only spooky because of unsolved mysteries. Yeah, it's really hard to say because I don't I you know I can't uh, determine whether his voice has always been that way or if it's just like you know I'm over over determined by unsolved the ubiquity of unsolved mysteries. But even so, you know he's a he's a fun presence to see in an episode. Yeah, we also have Grady in this episode. Um, Mm -hmm. Jessica is visiting him, and they go together to this estate. Uh, So it's a Grady episode where Grady actually is less annoying and less bothersome than usual. That's true. And I like that, but I do like that Jessica, you know, kind of nudges him a little bit about his uh, romantic exploits and also his choice of employers. Yeah, in the final scene, she's like, Grady, your love life is a mess. I mean, she says it really point blank, right? <laughs> because, of course, he was flirting with a model the entire episode, whom it turned out was having an affair with our victim's nephew. But by the end of the episode, she's running off with Robert Stack's character. Poor Grady. I mean, her name's Millicent. Let's just, I want to just pause there for a moment to say that I love it when characters are named Millicent. <laughs> like, I feel like that's a name that we don't get to use anymore. I mean, she's, she's really beautiful. She is, yes. And that, you know, that huge 80s blonde hair is truly iconic. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, the other person we have in this episode is Alex Rocco, who yep. plays, I don't even know if we ever get the character's name. Um, but he plays the sidekick, the side man, the assistant right. to Christopher Bundy, our victim. Um, much in the same way that Johnny Shannon in Murder at the Oasis had, had um, what's his name from the Rat Pack? Yardley is his last name. Bert Yardley, that's his name, according to the IMDb. Okay, I never even heard anybody say it in the dialogue. That's I think maybe twice. Okay, but what's the Rat Pack guy's name? Oh, I don't Joey, help me out here. Joey. <laughs> well, this is going to need some editing. Okay, anyway. But he's, of course, most notable for being in The Godfather. Alex Rocco? Yes. Yeah. I make my students watch a scene where he dies. It's really awful. I mean, he's also in The Golden Girls. He's the first person to play Glenn O'Brien, Dorothy's married lover in the first season. And, of course, the second person is? Jerry Orbach. Also in Murder, She Wrote. The much more convincing Glenn O'Brien, if, I, if I'm if i being honest. He yeah. strikes me as much more authentically Italian, or sorry, Irish than Alex Rocco. But anyway, we don't need to go on that tangent. 
No, we don't need to. Um, I think what's interesting to me is who Alex Rocco and um, Robert Stack are playing as characters in mm-hmm. this. So Robert Stack's character is a publisher, Chester Harrison, who has essentially lost his publishing business because he got deep in debt and Christopher Bundy is going to buy him out and drive him out of business and presumably turn his publishing company into a sleaze factory because that's what he does. Right. Um, and so Chester, like Jessica, is at the estate to like sort of plead his case. Uh, and he runs away right at the moment that Christopher Bundy is found dead. And so it seems like he's the number one suspect. And Jessica's met him once at some book fair. It's casually mentioned in the dialogue. Um, but other than that, they don't really know each other teach. And so her sort of ardent insistence that he's innocent and her utter despair when he's arrested is a little bit confusing to me because they don't really know each other and she seems like a little bit too, you know, emotionally wrapped up in the case. Right. I mean, it might just be the case that, you know, Jessica, with her usual sense of, you know, that sixth sense that she has, she kind of knows when people are innocent and... So maybe that's the explanation. But you're right, there's not a lot of like textual evidence to give us an indication of why she would feel so strongly about this. It's just convenient for the plot, I think. I think it's also that, um, you know, uh, they make like literary references to each other. So there's mm-hmm. a kind of a simpatico shorthand happening between them as members of the literati. Um, right. But anyway, he didn't do it. <laughs> and... Um, Alex Rocco plays the assistant who is really gross. Like the minute Bundy is dead, he tells him to lock down the house and close the gates. And, um, but he, so it seems like he's like, we got to find the murderer before the murderer escapes. But at some point the police show up and he's like really angry. Like who called the cops? So we know that he's invested in finding the murderer, but not through any sort of normative. So presumably he's in on, um, on Bundy's, illicit dealings as it were oh yeah so if the police show up they might find out about all the irs schemes right which that whole side plot is you know the whole irs side plot feels a little tacked on it feels like they just needed to pad it a little bit like it doesn't really go anywhere or do much well you should explain it for people who haven't seen the episode all right so it turns out that the butler i guess you would call him is actually an undercover agent for the irs investigating uh, Bundy. Do they have those? I don't. Is know. that a real thing? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, pres- <laughs> well, I don't know. It depends. If you if you're plugged into the right wing like media sphere, presumably yes, they do. <laughs> um, but you know, he, you know, we have this whole side plot with his character who is supposedly investigating um, Bundy's dealings with the mafia, and you know, it's fine. Like it's what what you might expect from what she wrote episode, but it just it, since he's not really key to the investigation of the and the solving of the murder itself. It just feels a little bit like they just needed another character to to round things out a little bit. Because it doesn't seem to me that the whole mafia connection does much, except for maybe giving an alternative as to who might have done the killing. But even that doesn't really, like, there's no real exploration of that as a potential avenue. You know, that also reminds me of Murder at the Oasis, because we complained that we were told over and over that uh, the victim, Johnny Shannon, had dealings with the mafia, but we never saw anything. <laughs> we right. only could take it on people's words. Right. But at least in this episode, we know the IRS is investigating. We see the guy making secret photographs of files. And then as Jessica and Grady are leaving the estate, the IRS swoops in with a ton of cars and agents. And I guess they're going to raid the compound. Right. And keep t- Bundy's sister from continuing to engage in these kind of 
you know, shady dealings. I mean, there is that one moment where the IRS agent shares, a, like, a knowing wink with the, like, the investigating detective. Uh-huh. Like, there's a, a knowing look. So, clearly, like, they're, you know, they both know what the other is doing. So, it's, like, the local law enforcement has clearly had its eye on Bundy. Because, of course, he's the uh, grandson, we're told, of someone named Carmine Bundiati, because they had to give him an Italian name to make the Mafia connection plausible. You gotta love 1980s TV, right? (laughs) (laughs) Carmine Bundiati. I am, like, so offended on behalf of Italians, and I'm not even Italian. Like, in what universe is the name Bundy derived from Bundiati? Like, like, the etymology of that just does not hold up to it, even the most basic of scrutiny. I, I would like to even push this further and say that if there is anyone out there in the world whose surname is Bundiati, would you please write in to let us know of your existence so that we can apologize to the writers for finding it to be the most ridiculous Italianized name ever. I doubt we'll get any emails. It's like something you'd see in The Simpsons. Like, there's... <laughs> Like, it's just such a transparent effort to make Like, this... Mo, the bartender, gets in deep with some guy named Bundiati, and he's telling Homer <laughs> to help him help bail him out. <laughs> oh, I can't. I can't. Um, but I will say that, you know, in all seriousness, I think that, you know, Burt Convy does play this kind of sleazy, malicious person very well. Like, I think that he, he gives a very convincing performance as Bundy, and he makes him someone who's, you know... A little charismatic, but more or less just, as you, as you said earlier, like his sleaze factor, a, you know, a purveyor of, of smut, basically. So I think that that's something he captures particularly acutely. Well, I'm thinking we just had the sleazy magazine guy a couple of episodes back in the, um, the auction episode. Right. I mean, so it's very interesting to me. This is what I was going to get at, too, is that, you know, we see again and again, particularly in this second season, Jessica being very protective of her literary reputation. Yeah. Like, that's the whole premise of her going, or the whole reason for her going to, to Bundy's compound is basically to be like, look, you know, I'm a well-established, well-regarded writer. I don't want my name dragged through the mud, you know, which is a really, I just, I think it's an interesting exploration of, you know, the writer life that as a writer, you know, and both of us in our own ways and different avenues are writers. Like, it does matter where your name is seen. Like, that has an impact on how the your public views you. And so I think that that's an interesting nod to the, you know, the show's understanding of Jessica as an author, not just as, you know, that's not just a a plot device. It's, it's mm-hmm. essential to who she is. And I like that particular aspect. Well, we're told that it's the first short story she's ever going to publish. So that would seem like right. a pretty big deal. And it was supposed to go in literary lines magazine but it's now called leopard and has the model millicent posing seductively on it and we see her posing seductively by the swimming pool and and we see like giant photos of her again much like the model uh, the auction episode but we see like giant photos blown up of her around bundy's office and so it, it um it does. It, it has that reputation, right? Um, Jessica even calls it a girly magazine at one point, mm-hmm. and so that would be um, weirdly inappropriate for her literary career. But it also raises a question for me of like, why Bundy even wants her story in his magazine? Because I doubt his readership is going to read it or cares about reading it. Yeah, but it's about prestige. Like, and even if you have, even if you run a you know a sleazy magazine, there's still something to you know you you want to have that ever so slight patina of respectability. So that would be my speculation as to why he would want that still. 
Like, plus it would be, I mean, plus it would be the name. Like, people would, you mm, know. I suppose. His whole business model is selling magazines. Well, and I guess I suppose that she goes by J.B. Fletcher, and so there is a kind of obscuring of gender that might make it more plausible that her work is appearing in this magazine. Right. And I mean, yes, I know that Playboy is gross and disgusting without question, but, you know, it is also I'm not published- saying that for the record. Oh, well, I am saying that, but I mean. I think I, well, it's more complicated than that that we don't have time to get into. Okay, fair enough. Okay. What I'm saying is that, and part of the reason I'm getting there is because Playboy also publishes, like, has published many re- well-regarded authors. Like, it was so what I'm getting at. Mm. Not that, I don't think that necessarily, you know, Leopard is on Playboy quality, but I do think that's sort of what they're trying to articulate mm-hmm. what they're drawing on. Well, it's probably what Christopher Bundy wants to be, right? Exactly. Like, he's not Hustler, you know? Yeah. Or Penthouse. He's, you know, he went, he's aiming for a bit of a more highbrow, or at least middlebrow, <laughs> Um, audience base. So the whole episode hinges upon these security cameras that are all throughout the estate, but Bundy tells Jess that they don't record audio, which is a lie because at one point the security guard can hear a conversation. Right. Uh, He says they're not in the bedrooms and they're kind of not. Like we see a couple of bedrooms and we, we don't see security cameras in them. But what I find really curious to you is like, why are all the cameras inside the house? (laughs) That yeah, seems like a very busy, and everyone keeps saying like you'll get used to the cameras. They're just for safety. It's, Wouldn't the estate be safer if these cameras were outside the house? Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, there's something very almost prurient about it. You know, like someone having lots of cameras set up throughout their house. You know, it doesn't say much for you know the level of trust that <laughs> that Bunty has with the members of his family or whoever well, else. Well, I suppose to you know, well placed mistrust because one of them <laughs> ended up murdering him. So, right. So, I mean, can we talk a little bit about the the this use of technology? Like we've talked before about how, in many ways, Murder Shirt is kind of like a time capsule of technology in these storylines because they help us to see how technology works in previous periods. And I'm thinking back to. When we were growing up and we were, rec- I don't know if your family did this, but recorded things off TV, like, mm-hmm. and, how, and how very complicated it often was to, to record things onto a VHS. Like, it, it was not. You just pushed record and play at the same time. Well, I know, but I mean, like, but there were other more arcane setups that you could have if you wanted certain kinds of, like, I don't know. At least I remember having. Well, I think once we had the ability to like program VCRs ahead of time, that was a nightmare. Nobody ever got it right. You always missed the show you were trying to record. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, so I mean, like you think about that now and it's almost like speaking a foreign language. Like, I mean, when I watch this from, you know, as a, as a millennial who grew up, came of age, like when VHS first came out, it makes sense to me, but I'm just trying to think about what it would be like for, say, a, a 20 something who's never even encountered a VCR Uh to, to watch this and be like, what? on earth is happening with this technology right now like it's just you know it's just it's a really fascinating yeah i well i mean instead of looping the vcr into the camera you would hack the camera right right, and reroute the feed digitally but i think what's what's perplexing to me is like the idea was that there's a vcr and a tv in bundy's library uh and so she somehow with some video camera presumably her brother's because he's videotaping everybody all the time which is another layer of the surveillance state we see here. Um, mm-hmm. She tapes herself, like, rummaging through the books, and then uses puts that tape into the VCR, patches the VCR into the camera, so that it looks to the security guard who's watching the monitors like she is rummaging through the books. And then once jo- – um, I almost called him Johnny. Once Christopher <laughs> is shot and killed and everybody's running around, there's chaos. She knows the security guard's not downstairs anymore. She can yank the cords out. She rewinds the tape. 
presses record, which on some players you can do without the TV being on, some you can't. And this one, I apparently you can. So the TV's off, but she presses record. No one will notice it. And it tapes over the videotape right. of her. So it's this total analog setup, right? But it raises questions for me because the video line in should not be on the camera. It should be on the monitor in the security guard station. So if she wants to reroute the feed, it seems to me she would need to have the cable going down to the monitor in the security station. I don't understand how patching into the camera would change anything. TJ's making faces at me like this is getting real tech nerdy and not helpful to our podcast episode. No, I mean, no, no, because I do think, well, what I, no, actually, that's not what I'm thinking. I mean, I am thinking it's tech nerdy, but that's fine because actually I find that fascinating. Like, I, because I think that what we're seeing in this moment is A, tapping into anxieties or concerns about you know as you said the security state but also the increased presence of technology yeah. in everyday life recording technology in particular um but secondly i also think that the a series is assume, and the writers are assuming a certain level of ignorance on the part of the general public probably that's a good um, point about what about how these things work and whether they would act, people are like oh yeah i can totally see that because you know because Jessica the sort of, explains it it makes sense exactly yeah, that right because you point. know that carries a lot of like weight <laughs> explanatory weight for her to say, you know, believe Jessica, because we are obviously trained to believe Jessica. Yeah. So I think that those are the things that this particular moment is drawing on, which I think makes it fascinating. Like, I think that even in this, as we, you know, talked about as sort of this blase episode, there's a really fascinating texture that's brought out by this engagement with technology. I We also see this engagement with the idea of surveillance uh, at the beginning when Jessica arrives at the estate and the nephew is videotaping people. And there's a couple of shots that are actually through the perspective of his camcorder. Mm -hmm. Like the, the quality of the video changes um, so that it appears we're looking through a handycam or, um, you know, like shaky looking through his video recorder. Uh, which I right. thought was a really interesting aesthetic choice on their part. And again, it reminds us like everyone is being watched all the time. Mm -hmm. And it also just as someone who is deeply committed to the idea of consent, which is rapidly fading in our time. I was just like, oh, my God, he did not ask Jessica before he pointed that camera at her. <laughs> and that just made me angry. Of course, no one would have asked for consent in the 80s with a camera. Uh, um, the other thing that struck me about this idea of surveillance, Teach, is um, everything... The clues all hinge upon visible cameras. Like, Jessica goes to the bedrooms and, like, doesn't see a camera. And then um, the Millicent, our model, her alibi was that she was playing tennis with the nephew. And Jessica's like, I thought you had blisters on your feet. How are you playing tennis? And she's like, okay, just kidding. We were upstairs, presumably fornicating. Um, but there's no video camera there. <laughs> and there's no video camera outside. So no one can tell whether they were playing tennis or upstairs boinking, right? But but that all hinges on visible cameras. And so the evidence is like, I guess it just raised questions for me. Like, why on earth did Christopher Bundy outfit his house with these cameras that are so huge and they move back and forth to follow people around rooms? And like, how much more insidious would this murder plot have been if there were hidden cameras that people didn't know about screwing up their alibis? Now, I will say, you know, speaking of alibis and motives and things, I actually found the murder plot, sorry, the murder motivation to be one of the more convincing ones. Like, you know, sometimes I tend to be a bit persnickety about why people would commit murder. But in this case, 
the, you know, it's his niece who's the resp- responsible, as we've said. But she did it because he basically drove her father to death, like, because he wouldn't loan him money, and there was this whole thing. So I found that to be, you know, within the world of murder mysteries, I thought that was a pretty good motivation. Like, it would make sense that, you know, someone would be enraged that their father was driven to death by someone else. I suppose so, but I didn't understand the timing. Yeah. Um, I never understand why anyone would ever commit murder while Jessica Fletcher is staying at your house. Like, you're just an idiot if you do right. that. Same as when Hercule Poirot is staying at your house. Um, but but it, it's like the death was in the past, so I didn't understand what event precipitated the murder now. Oh, yeah, that's true. Was there some particular catalyst that made this year the year she needed to kill him? You know, thinking apart from this weekend while Jessica's there, like, what's go- what was going on right now that she had to do it? That was never made clear. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, you're right. Maybe it was, it was a New Year's resolution. She was like, this is my year. This is when I'm going to finally get my revenge. <laughs> But I also I also liked the way that Jessica figures it out, which is that she realizes that the the sunlight doesn't line up because whenever she sees the the murderer in the video, the way the sun is shining couldn't be at the time of day that it was supposed to be, which I thought that was a neat little thing. And it was a nice callback to the earlier part of the episode where Jessica's almost blinded by the sunlight, which admittedly was pretty the most obvious, stupid clue. <laughs> Right. Some really heavy writing. Eh? Right. Because she, like, recoils back with her, like, hand in front of her face. Yeah, the whole scene stops for, like, five seconds for this <laughs> stupid bit about how the sun is shining through the curtains. And therefore, when they see the sun shining through the curtains again, they know the time of day doesn't line up with when the woman was supposed to be rifling through the books. So I guess this is, like, Chekhov's sunlight? Is that what's happening? Like, <laughs> I don't know. But it's also, I'm I'm kind of, like, unconvinced because... We're talking about a black and white surveillance camera and, like, the graininess of, like, you know, okay, the murder confesses. So we've got the confession. But, like, if you actually tried to argue in court that that was sunlight and therefore it had to be a particular time of day, it's like a grainy surveillance camera. I don't know that I'd buy it. As I say, she could have just been like, you really, you still have no evidence. Like, you have nothing but circumstantial evidence in your say-so. Like, you have no actual physical evidence that I did this. So. (laughs) Right. But she did say, you know, in Great Murder, she wrote condi- tradition. She's just like, yep, I did it. Here's why. <laughs> <laughs> you caught me. <laughs> Such is the power of J.B. Fletcher. Like, she just, you know, she has that p- ability to just force a confession out just by the simple presence of her personality. <laughs> oh, to have that power, right? I have a couple of other questions about this episode. Okay. I want to know why at the end, when Jessica and Grady are finally leaving to get to Poughkeepsie, where they've... We've heard that they are headed the entire episode, and I think just to convince us that Lansbury can pronounce that place, um, like, why does Grady tie the luggage onto the back of the car instead of – he ties it on top of the trunk instead of putting it in the trunk. And I, I just don't understand why he does that. Yeah, it's – you know, I don't know. It, it seems a little old-fashioned. I was also confused as to where they got the car. It's like this cute little uh, cabriolet convertible thing. I presume they rented it just for this trip, but Grady certainly isn't driving this around Manhattan, right? I would assume not. I don't. I, my, I also have questions about Grady's skills as an accountant, since he seems to migrate from job to job so <laughs> fluidly. It's like, God, just get a job and hold it down already. Like, you know. But was, don't you think that's like what our parents say about our generation? Yeah, well, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but he's in the 80s. This is the, you know, this is the... Uh... Yeah, this is the 80s and he works with money. He should be like... Right. He should be like the CEO of a company by now. What? That's what I'm saying. I can see why Jessica would be a bit impatient. She's like, look, I'm like in my 60s and I have a flourishing writing career. What is wrong with you? <laughs> Get it together. Get it together, kid. Little does she know, she's not only going to support him, she's going to support him and his wife and their kid for the rest of her life. Well, I mean, she, I mean, this is still the woman who gave that astronomical check to that one rando, like, several episodes ago. <laughs> you so, always you know. mention that. That was, that was, like, the seventh episode of the entire series, and you, like, keep it's, mentioning it I mean, it's it my, my deep-rooted desire to also have some very wealthy and fabulous author take me <laughs> under their wing and give me a lot of money like the other bit that i thought was super cute was when jessica is trying to convince the cop that he needs to keep investigating people and not um immediately leap to the conclusion that chester harrison did it and she says have you investigated the the guy and he's like who's that she's like the manservant he's like i don't know what that means she's like oh my god don't make me say it the butler, the maybe the butler did it, and it's like it's, it's just a cute little bit, um, you know, like playing on murder mystery tropes, right? And of course, the detective is also in the Golden Girls. He plays uh, the football coach that Dorothy locks horns with. There is other media other than the Golden Girls, you know that, right? I I beg to differ. And also, you were I find that egregious coming from you, considering our one of our first bonding experiences was over the Golden Girls. So I find that deeply that is true. Distressing. We met over the Golden Girls. So. So, what do you think overall, Teej, about this one? Well, actually, I wasn't thrilled with it when we started, but as is often the case, I actually like it more now that we've did a bit of a deep dive into some of the layers that we didn't, I didn't notice at first. So, let's say it's in the second tier. Uh, it gets entertaining. Like, I didn't dislike it. Um, it's not like one of the brilliant episodes, but I think it has enough entertainment value to work to make it worthwhile. I think that's exactly how I feel. It's not on my short list of favorites, but it's not one of the ones that I am like, oh my God, I have to turn it off. I cannot stand that episode. Right. Totally fine. It's not Serviceful powder keg. Episode. It's not powder keg, for example. <laughs> not powder keg. And it's not the, something that's coming up soon that's going to be real challenging because it's a three-parter. Oh boy. To be continued, you guys. But for now, thanks for listening to another episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And we'll see you next week. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.